Among all the COVID-19 balancing acts we've encountered over the last year, one of them has global implications for Canada. The balance between immigration as economic stimulus versus immigration as our humanitarian obligation. One of the biggest numbers that fell after March 2020 was Canada's immigration intake. But for a country that depends on newcomers and their labor, for its long-term economic success, immigration could be the key to bouncing back from COVID-19. Now that Canadian admissions are climbing again, which immigrant classes is Canada prioritizing? And maybe more importantly, which groups are losing out? To find the answers, today we're speaking with Dr. Ian Reeve. He's the Associate Director of the Conference Board of Canada's immigration team. He's worked across Canada as a researcher, educator, and policy analyst, and his work helped shape the national debate on immigration today. We're lucky to have him on the show. I'm Kira Johnston, and this is the Leadership Perspective series from the Conference Board of Canada. Hi, Ian. Welcome to Leadership Perspectives. Thank you for joining us. Really happy to be here. How have Canada's immigration levels changed over the pandemic? So if we look at arrivals from when the pandemic started, we saw a 56% decrease over the rest of 2020 compared to the same period over 2019. The plan for 2020 before the pandemic was to welcome 341,000 immigrants. In the end, 184,000 actually came. So this was a shortfall of 157,000. And what that led to was a decision point by the government about the role that immigration was going to play in that. Pretty clearly, they made the decision that immigration is important, not only to the future of the economy, but also potentially to the economic recovery itself. And so the government not only decided to keep immigration levels high, but actually tried to make up for the losses that were experienced as a result of lower numbers in 2020. And the levels plan that we saw the government table towards the end of last year for the next three years keeps the same growth trajectory and the same basic level that existed before the pandemic, but essentially tax 50,000 additional immigrants onto each of those first three years to make up for that 150,000 person shortfall. That's the overall plan. But of course, the big question is, we're still experiencing travel restrictions. We're still experiencing some operational delays and issues across the immigration system. So how does the government plan to actually meet these targets in 2021, given those things? And we've seen a couple of really interesting adaptations. The focus has been to try and draw more people that are already here in Canada and have experience living in Canada. And then most recently, just a real focus on temporary residents and giving them a pathway to permanent residency in a pretty unprecedented fashion. Which immigration classes have seen the numbers drop more than others? In the first part of the pandemic, we were watching this all rather closely. And what we initially saw was a pretty big decrease in refugee admissions, though that thankfully recovered more towards the end of the year as the system adapted and as pieces of the overall refugee system could go above and beyond just the normal processing capacity of IRCC and goes to things like the refugee boards. So as that all caught up, refugee numbers did recover. But I think where the most interesting place to look is within the economic class, where we did see throughout 2020 an increased reliance on Canadian experience class. And what that indicated to us was that because of travel restrictions, the government was leaning on folks that were already in Canada, either here on work visas or on student visas, who had experience of studying or working in Canada and trying to get as many of them processed as possible so the numbers could continue to increase. What is the federal government doing to make it easier for those immigrants? Most of the economic classes in Canada operate on a point system, and these points are attributed to applicants based on all kinds of social capital factors, so things like their level of education, 
the amount of English or French language knowledge they might have, their age, things of that nature. And Canadian experience is another thing that does give you some points. There's a specified subclass within the economic streams called the Canadian experience class that privileges people that are coming from that experience. But what the government did early this year in February was they actually dropped the point threshold. The point threshold is pretty dynamic. It sort of changes with every single set of invitations that the government will send to applicants. The previous call had been about a 450-point cutoff. In February, that was dropped to 75, which meant a massive larger number of invitations to apply for those in the Canadian Experience class. So it really was trying to capture as many people as possible who are already in Canada and would not have to worry about travel restrictions. What we've seen is twice as many invitations to apply as usual at this stage compared to recent years. About 40,000 invitations have already been sent with a significant overrepresentation of Canadian experience. And again, this is just an attempt to send out way more invitations in the hope that more of them will ultimately be successful and be able to meet those thresholds. In terms of Canada's economic success, does it matter which classes of immigrants we admit? When we did our most recent research project, one of our focus areas was setting up some different immigration level scenarios to map the longer term economic impact of immigration. And one of the things that we looked at, besides just the overall levels, is we did a scenario where we changed the composition of the categories within the standard levels plan that we were modeling. What we did is we shrunk slightly the economic class, which of course is typically thought of as being the main economic driver and the one that we are most concerned about when asking questions about the impact of immigration on the economy. What we did with the difference is we grew proportionally the refugee class and the family reunification classes. What we found was it actually had less of an impact than we might expect. There's two reasons for that. One reason is that once you stretch the economic impact of immigrants out over 20 plus years, a lot of the impact that you're talking about isn't necessarily just how much money they make and the productive capacity they have, but it's also how much they spend. And it's also the impact that they have just as consumers and the economic activity that they generate simply by allowing our population to grow instead of to shrink. And obviously, earnings have an impact on how much disposable income people have. But ultimately, just having anybody who's working at any level within the economy does make a pretty significant contribution over time. And also, I think we do underestimate long-term economic and career trajectories and capacity of immigrants who don't come in through the economic stream. There's a lot of focus on the very highly educated high flyers that come in as primary applicants through our economic streams. We shouldn't underestimate our refugees. We shouldn't underestimate people that may come through the family reunification programs. Spending seems to equalize things over a really long time. But the other aspect that's maybe less positive is that I still don't know that we're doing quite a good enough job of maximizing the contributions of our high-flying economic immigrants, the ones with the highest education, highest economic potential. It points to, and this is a theme we're going to be looking at a lot in the future, the real necessity of integrating, especially some of the highest skilled newcomers, into the economy more quickly, helping them get jobs that are commiserate with their education, skills, and experience to allow them to be as productive as possible in the economy, both for their own benefit but also to the benefit of Canada, the growth of our businesses, and for the health and vitality of the economies and the different regions across the country. And your team modeled some scenarios for Canada's immigration admissions from 2036 to 2040. You measured high immigration, baseline, and low immigration. What effect did those scenarios have on Canada's economy and GDP? On the one hand, there's a relatively simple story, which is that as immigration grows, the economy grows. 
the higher our immigration levels across those scenarios, the better the impacts for GDP, obviously the better impact for tax revenue and things of that nature. But also very importantly, and this is a number that our research area has paid a lot of attention to over the years and that many economists pay very close attention to in Canada, is the working age to retiree ratios. This is the ratio of people who are of an age where they could be working and for the most part will be working in at least some capacity versus the number of people who are living in the country who are of retired age and are less likely to be working, more likely to be retired. You want a ratio there that is relatively robust and a declining ratio creates challenges in terms of the affordability of different social programs, in terms of just the availability of labor versus need, particularly in sectors that may serve seniors. Given that our birth rate continues to be low, immigration is really the only significant lever we have to address that demographic change over time. As immigration goes up, the picture in that way gets better and better. One story that we found that was a little more complicated was on GDP per capita. We found that as immigration increased, GDP per capita actually decreased. Now, GDP per capita decreasing sounds automatically negative for the vast majority of people, but there can obviously be subtleties in there. What we think this points to is we could do a better job of more quickly integrating newcomers into the Canadian labor market and to help find employment for them that is commiserate with their skills and experience. Right now, the average time that it takes a newcomer to find a job where they earn as much as a Canadian-born worker with the same level of education and experience is about 13 years. And for the highest skilled immigrants, where it's a little bit faster, it's still five or six years, but those are five or six prime years of people working in very high-in-demand professions. This is a big inefficiency in our system right now. Given that our model was drawing on historical data to project forward to try to understand future economic impacts, it draws on the last several years of these less-than-ideal outcomes. If we could change those outcomes, if we could reduce the amount of time between landing and that job that actually really aligns with skills and experience, then I think that the GDP per capita numbers would also improve significantly. Trying to find more and more ways to do that is going to be a big focus for us going forward. In those models, your high scenario involves immigration levels averaging 1.3% of the population. It's quite a bit lower than targets that are being pushed by groups like the Century Initiative, who want Canada's population to grow through immigration to 100 million. How did you choose your parameters and what do you think about these super ambitious growth targets? We had a couple different scenarios. The high growth scenario fixed the immigration levels at a growth of 1.3% per year. So every year would face a compound growth rate of 1.3% over the previous year. What we wanted to pick with both our high scenario and our low scenario was to choose something that was at least somewhat politically plausible. We didn't want to choose a totally crazy scenario that we don't think would ever happen, where next year we start admitting a million people per year or something like that. We also know the level of popularity that immigration has in Canada and that all the major political parties support pretty high levels of immigration in Canada. Therefore, our low scenario wasn't a shut down the borders or really, really crunch immigration scenario. We tried to pick plausible scenarios that still would hopefully demonstrate some clear difference. And I think we did see important difference in the economic modeling. In terms of the sort of more ambitious models by places like Century Initiative, there's a lot of difficulty in predicting long-term population growth. The Century Initiative's target is 100 million Canadians by 2100. Over the next 80 years, it's very challenging to imagine what kind of demographic factors are going to play on our population. You could think of things like the birth rate. The birth rate seems as though it's stuck at this low 
below replacement level as it has been for a number of years, but who knows what factors will come in the future. There's also questions about international mobility of labor and out-migration. As the world continues to become more connected, as people are more able to work in other countries virtually without necessarily having to live in those countries, there's a lot of big challenges in predicting these things. But it's entirely possible that at a level relatively close to ours of about a 1.3% growth per year rate, we could get close to 100 million. So it might not be too far off from what organizations like the Century Initiative are proposing. But I think the key thing is that if we believe in that kind of high growth scenario, if we believe in a Canada that grows its population that much to have a bigger role in the world and to increase the number of Canadians out in the world doing good things as they tend to advocate, there's many different paths to get there. Immigration is going to continue to be very essential to that. We'll just have to keep reassessing every few years to see what our goals are and what immigration is contributing to it. In your research, you mentioned that one of the biggest long-standing issues of our immigration system is attracting newcomers to areas outside of the big three, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. Has COVID-19 increased this challenge? And if so, what can we do to solve it? Before the pandemic, Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada was really developing programs where retaining people outside of the big cities actually was a priority for almost the entire history of Canada. That's never really been an explicit priority, at least in our modern immigration history. It's always been more focused on helping people find employment, helping them settle where they're most likely to integrate generally into Canadian society. But there really has been a shift over the last five or six years to think that not only could there be benefits for individual communities by making immigrants aware of opportunities there and encouraging them to go to those communities, but we actually increasingly see evidence that there's benefits for the newcomers themselves. There's this assumption that the best economic opportunities are in the big cities, but that's actually really not the case. There are plenty of professions that immigrants are involved in where both their short-term and even their medium and long-term economic interests would be better served by considering medium or small communities. To say nothing of the fact that immigrants like anybody else, not everybody wants to live right in the city. Not everybody wants to commute into the city every day and live just outside. There's all kinds of different lifestyle preferences for them and their families that immigrants bring when they come to Canada. These efforts had been quite successful. There were things like the Atlantic Immigration Pilot, the Rural and Northern Immigration Pilot. COVID interrupted this to a certain degree. We did see in our analysis a swing slightly more back towards the traditional immigrant receiving provinces, Quebec, Ontario, British Columbia, and we think to cities within those places as well. In terms of where to go next, IRCC is continuing to focus on the two programs that I spoke about. They're also looking to launch a municipal nominee program, which will be just one more way for interested communities to work towards attracting more immigrants. There will be lots of ways to push this even further. There should be tools developed to help immigrants assess where the best economic options are for them. Communities that are interested in attracting immigrants should start to focus on providing the right settlement services, the right welcoming community vibes and services that will make newcomers feel welcome and feel as though they can contribute and be a part of those communities. These are really interesting debates, and we're actually going to have sessions on them coming up at the Canadian Immigration Summit, where we're hoping to dig in and think about this question, and we'll also have research on it going forward. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Before we go, talk about your team's other research projects that you have on the go. We have projects just getting started, looking at the role of immigrants in essential work sectors, which obviously has been a big focus during the pandemic but continues to be important going forward as many of those sectors will be facing labor shortages. We're also doing a project looking at international students, trying to better understand 
the reasons that they choose Canada to study, but also the tendency of some international students to come to Canada to study mostly as kind of a pathway to immigration and to citizenship and trying to understand those incentives in that system more comprehensively. We're going to continue to look at financial benefits of immigration, particularly as we question what to do with immigration levels post-pandemic. As always, we're going to be very interested in topics around the economic integration of newcomers, looking at how they can most effectively articulate their skills and experience to employers. But then maybe most importantly for the next few years, we're launching a major project looking at what we're calling the COVID cohort of immigrants. For all the reasons that we've talked about, this group of immigrants arriving during and just after the pandemic has a whole bunch of unique characteristics compared to previous ones. We think that this is a unique group of people that warrant special attention, both because they're entering difficult economic circumstances, may need additional help, but also because we think we can learn a lot about economic integration by comparing them to previous years. For everyone listening, you can check out Ian's upcoming two-page summary for executives, Counting on Immigration, Measuring the Pandemic's Effect, and Building Back Stronger by following the links in the episode description. And you can find out more about our other subject matter experts as well as our latest COVID-19 research and coverage at conferenceboard.ca. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. Leadership Perspectives is hosted by Kira Johnston and written by Sarah Mills. Kurt Steiglater is our audio engineer and Andy Joy is our post-production editor. Our executive producer is Michael Bassett and ideas were also contributed by Rob Collins. For more podcasts, research, commentary and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.